0: Let me tell you a story, podcast number 49.
1: It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. The age of Never mind It is a this is. I want to see Christmas without the essence of our show. You, know. you don't know about me show. without you...
0: Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors.
1: Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Just to do things a bit different, uh, I'll begin this podcast by continuing in Chapter 12 of Winds of Wyoming. When Kate and Clint walked into the Wild Bunch saloon. Country music blared at top volume from speakers near the ceiling. Three lines of dancers in jeans and plaid shirts, male and female, tall and short, young and old, moved in unison across the wooden dance floor, grinning and clapping as they spun with the beat. Kate tapped Clint's shoulder. Looks fun, but I don't know the steps. He drew her into a corner. Well, practice. I'll follow them and you can follow me. They laughed and stumbled together until she got the hang of it. And then they joined the hand-clapping, boot-slapping group, swiveling and stomping, stepping and kicking. They shimmied their shoulders, shouted, yee and waved their arms. Kate couldn't stop giggling. Forty-five minutes later, Clint touched her shoulder. Ready for a breather? She fell against him, breathing hard. I thought you'd never ask. He led her off the dance floor to a booth. That was a workout. She dropped into the soft, padded cushion of the booth. Amazing how good it feels to sit, but I have to say, I haven't enjoyed myself this much in years. Is it okay to take my boots off for a few minutes? He nodded, resting his forearms on the table. Are you hooked? Can I take you dancing every Friday night? She grinned and pulled her boots off one at a time. I'd love it, but I also want to try all the other cowboy stuff I saw in the movies when I was growing up. She fanned herself with a napkin. You know, rodeos, cattle drives, barn dances. We can do it all, Clint said. Just depends on how often we can get away from the ranch. The barmaid brought their drinks. Lemonade for Kate, who'd promised God and her Aunt Mary she'd never again partake of an addictive substance, and a beer for Clint. They sat back relishing the refreshment and the breeze from the open side door and chatting like old friends. Kate enjoyed watching Clint's expressive face. It was nice to know that a great guy, and a good-looking one at that, wanted to hang out with her, especially since Mike was unavailable. Clint got up to join the dancers again. Kate was reaching for her boots when she saw Jerry Ramsey walk in the front door with Tara Hughes. What? She jerked, knocking her ankle against the table leg. Ouch! Clint grabbed her arm. You okay? Elbows on the table, she dropped her head into her hands, hoping the duo hadn't seen her. I hit my ankle on the table leg. The pain morphed into a throb. I don't think I can dance. Even if she could, she didn't dare walk out on the dance floor again. Want me to get you some ice? Questions ricocheted in her head like an out-of-control racquetball. Was Ramsey ever in jail? Why was his face such strange colors? Had someone beat him up? And how did he hook up with Tara? And the biggest question of all, why was she with him and not with Mike? Thanks, Kate said. I think I need fresh air more than anything. She motioned toward the side door. What had Ramsey told Tara about her? Had they seen her? Clint picked up her boots and helped her stand holding her arm as she limped outside barefoot. She leaned against the brick wall, her weight on her good leg. How did Ramsay manage to destroy every single happy moment of her life? Clint placed her boots on the ground. Want me to take you home? She sighed. I'm sorry I ruined the evening. She hated to be a party pooper, but she couldn't risk a scene with either Ramsay or Tara and chance having her past revealed. You didn't ruin anything, Clint said. I had a great time. You caught on fast. Next time, we'll show the locals how the burgers line dance. Burgers? Isn't that what you Pittsburgh people call yourselves? Pittsburghers? She giggled. You are a crazy man. Did you know that? Ramsay took another sip of beer and gaped at Tara's tight in and inviting shirt, which was spread open several buttons down. You're looking good tonight, Carol. She scowled at him. How many times do I have to tell you it's Tara? As quickly as the frown had come, it was replaced by a demure smile. She leaned toward him, revealing one and a half butterflies. I drove all the way to Cheyenne to shop for something special for you tonight. Do you like my blouse? His eyes were locked, but not on hers. Oh yeah, just for me? She nodded. I'm so glad you're a free man again. The two of us will make a great team. Team? Mm Mm-hmm. She stroked his hand. I have plans. Plans that will get you what you want and get me what I want. What if I don't agree with those plans? Oh, I think you will, Jer. In fact... I'm sure you will.
0: Treasure Island, Chapter 10 All that night we were in a great bustle getting things stowed in their place, and boatfuls of the squire's friends, Mr. Blandley and the like, coming off to wish him a good voyage and a safe return. We never had a night at the Admiral Benbow when I had half the work, and I was dog-tired when— A little before dawn, the boatswain sounded his pipe, and the crew began to man the capstan bars. I might have been twice as weary, yet I would not have left the deck. All was so new and interesting to me. The brief commands, the shrill note of the whistle, the men bustling to their places in the glimmer of the ship's lanterns. Now, barbecue! Tip us a stave, cried one voice. The old one, cried another. Aye, aye, mates, said Long John was standing by with his crutch under his arm and at once broke out in the air and words I knew so well. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest and then the whole crew bore a chorus. Yo-ho-ho in ho, a bottle of rum and at the third ho drive the bars before them with a will. Even at that exciting moment it carried me back to the old Admiral Benbow in a second and I seemed to hear the voice of the captain piping in the chorus. But soon the anchor was short up. Soon it was hanging, dripping at the bows. Soon the sails began to draw, and the land and shipping to flit by on either side. And before I could lie down to snatch an hour of slumber, the Hispaniola had begun her voyage to the Isle of Treasure. I'm not going to relate that voyage in detail. It was fairly prosperous. The ship proved to be a good ship. The crew were capable seamen. And the captain thoroughly understood his business. But before we came the length of Treasure Island, two or three things had happened which required to be known. Mr. Arrow, first of all, turned out even worse than the captain had feared. He had no command among the men, and people did what they pleased with him. But that was by no means the worst of it. For, after a day or two at sea, he began to appear on deck with hazy eye, red cheeks, stuttering tongue, and other marks of drunkenness. Time after time he was ordered below in disgrace. Sometimes he fell and cut himself. Sometimes he lay all day long in his little bunk at one side of the companion. Sometimes, for a day or two, he would be almost sober and attend to his work, at least passably. In the meantime, We could never make out where he got the drink. That was the ship's mystery. Watch him as we pleased. We could do nothing to solve it. And when we asked him to his face, he would only laugh if he were drunk. And if he were sober, deny solemnly that he ever tasted anything but water. He was not only useless as an officer and a bad influence amongst the men, but it was plain that at this rate he must soon kill himself outright so nobody was much surprised nor very sorry when one dark night, with a head sea, he disappeared entirely and was seen no more. Overboard, said the captain. Well, gentlemen, that saves the trouble of putting him in irons. But there we were, without a mate, and it was necessary, of course, to advance one of the men. The boatswain, Joe Anderson, was the likeliest man aboard and though he kept his old title, he served in a way as mate. Mr. Trelawney had followed the sea, and his knowledge made him very useful, for he often took a watch himself in easy weather. And the coxswain Israel Hands, was a careful, wily old, experienced seaman who could be trusted at a pinch with almost anything. He was a great confidant of Long John Silver, And so the mention of his name leads me on to speak of our ship's cook, Barbecue, as the men called him. Aboard ship, he carried his crutch by a lanyard round his neck to have both hands as free as possible. It was something to see him wedge the foot of the crutch against a bulkhead and, propped against it, yielding to every movement of the ship, get on with his cooking like someone safe ashore. Still more strange was uh, it was to see him in the heaviest of weather cross the deck. He had a line or two rigged up to help him cross the widest spaces, Long John's earrings, they were called, and he would hand himself from one place to another, now using the crutch, now trailing it alongside by the lanyard as quickly as another man could walk. Yet some of the men who had sailed with him before expressed their pity to see him so reduced. He's no common man, barbecue, said the coxswain to me. He had good schooling in his young days and can speak like a book when so minded. And brave, a lion's nothing alongside Long John. I seen him grapple four and knock their heads together, him unarmed. All the crew respected and even obeyed him. He had a way of talking to each and doing everybody some particular service. To me, he was unwearily kind, and always glad to see me in the galley, which he kept as clean as a new pin. the dishes hanging up, burnished, and his parrot in a cage in one corner. Come away, Hawkins, he would say. Come and have a yarn with John. Nobody more welcome than yourself, my son. Sit you down and hear the news. Here's Captain Flint. I calls my parrot Captain Flint, after the famous buccaneer. Here's Cap'n Flint predicting success to our voyage. Wasn't you, Cap'n? And the parrot would say with great rapidity, Pieces of eight, pieces of eight, pieces of eight, till you wondered that it was not out of breath, or till John threw his handkerchief over the cage. Now that bird, he would say, is maybe 200 years old, Hawkins. They lives forever, mostly. And if anybody's seen more wickedness, it must be the devil himself. She's sailed with England, the great Cap'n England, the pirate. She's been at Madagascar and at Malabar and Suriname and Providence and Portobello. She was at the fishing up of the wrecked plate ships. It's there she learned pieces of eight and little wonder, 350,000 of them, Hawkins. She was at the boarding of the Viceroy of the Indies out of Goa, she was. But you smelt powder, didn't you, Cap'n? Stand by to go about, the parrot would scream. Ah, she's a handsome craft, she is, the cook would say, and give her sugar from his pocket. And then the bird would peck at the bars and swear straight on, passing belief for wickedness. There, John would add, you can't touch pitch and not be mucked, lad. Here's this poor old innocent bird of mine, swearing blue fire, and none the wiser you may lay to that. She would swear the same in a manner of speaking before chaplain. And John would touch his forelock with a solemn way he had that made me think he was the best of men. In the meantime, the squire and and Captain Smollett were still on pretty distant terms with one another. The squire made no bones about the matter. He despised the captain. The captain, on his part, never spoke but when he was spoken to, and then sharp and short and dry, and not a word wasted. He owned, when driven into a corner, that he seemed to have been wrong about the crew, that some of them were as brisk as he wanted to see, and all had behaved fairly well. As for the ship, he had taken a downright fancy to her. She'll lie a point nearer the wind than a man has a right to expect of his own married wife, sir. But, he would add, All I say is, we're not home again, and I don't like the cruise. The squire at this would turn away and march up and down the deck, chin in air. A trifle more of that man, he would say, and I shall explode. We had some heavy weather, which only proved the qualities of the Hispaniola. Every man on board seemed well content, and they must have been hard to please if they had not been otherwise. For it is my belief there was never a ship's company so spoiled since Noah put to sea. Double grog was going on the least excuse. There was duff on odd days, as, for instance, if the squire heard it was any man's birthday, and always a barrel of apples standing broached in the waist for anyone to help himself that had a fancy. Never knew a good come of it yet, the captain said to Dr. Livesey, but good did come of the apple barrel, as you shall hear for if it had not been for them we should have had no note of warning and might all have perished by the hand of treachery this was how it came about we had run up the trades to get the wind of the island we were after i am not allowed to be more plain and now we were running down for it with a bright lookout day and night it was about the last day of our outward voyage by the largest computation Sometime that night, or at latest, before noon of the morrow, we should sight the treasure island. We were heading south-southwest, and had a steady breeze abeam, and a quiet sea. The Hispaniola rolled steadily, dipping her bowsprit now and then with a whiff of spray. All was drawing, a low and aloft. Everyone was in the bravest spirits, because we were now so near an end of the first part of our adventure. Now just after sundown, when all my work was over, and I was on my way to my berth, it occurred to me that I should like an apple. I ran on deck. The watch was all forward looking out for the island. The man at the helm was watching the luff of the sail, and whistling away gently to himself, and that was the only sound, excepting the swish of the sea against the bows, and around the sides of the ship. In I got bodily into the apple barrel and found there was scarce an apple left, but sitting down there in the dark, what with the sound of the waters and the rocking movement of the ship, I had either fallen asleep or was was on the point of doing so, when a heavy man sat down with rather a clash close by. The barrel shook as he leaned his shoulders against it. I was just about to jump up when the man began to speak. It was Silver's voice, and before I had heard a dozen words, I would not have shown myself for all the world, but lay there, trembling and listening, in the extreme of fear and curiosity. For from these dozen words I understood that the lives of all the honest men aboard depended upon me alone.
1: Here are some more kid chuckles to entertain you. The last one will definitely leave you with a chuckle. Um, I took these down um, during a time period when Brady was about one, Toby four, and Elisa six. One day, Toby asked if God was magic, and Elisa said, no, I guess I'd have to call him the miracle man. And one night he wanted to pray for his husband who lived with Aunt Stephanie and was, and he held out his hands um, to indicate the husband was quite small. Finally, we realized he meant his new little cousin, Leanna. An interesting note is that Leanna uh, recently had a little one of her own, a baby boy who's about four months old now. So back to Toby, one day after I sent him to bed for doing who knows what, he said to Steve, she doesn't like myself. And on the way home from somewhere uh, one evening, he said, the moon is following us to our house. There's a grandma and a man in the moon. This was when Elisa had just begun first grade, and she was enjoying school but she thought it was quite long and she wondered about all those recesses. One morning while I was fixing her lunch for school, Toby said, This is breakfast time, Mom. He showed me a gear on one of his toys and said, See, Mom, that's a sharpment. One night when Brady was babbling, Elisa said, Are you talking cursive, Brady? Speaking of his grandma Carrie, Toby said, she is very sweet. And uh, uh, this is the one that will definitely leave you with a chuckle. Uh, Toby, at four years of age, called Steve a homo safety pin.
0: All right, now the homo safety pin is going to read... (laughs) Almost safety to be in so good. This is by David Roper. It's called Juice. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. 1 Corinthians 4.20 When I was a youngster, we lived for a time in a house my father built on a wooded hill overlooking a small meadow. Our well and water system was located on the edge of the meadow. A small pump house stood over the well, housing a jet pump driven by... A 220 volt electric motor. It was a long push up the hill, and on occasion the motor overheated and blew the fuse. I often accompanied my father as he trudged down the hill to replace it. The fuse was a cylinder about three inches long with copper electrodes on each end, designed to slide into clips. My father would pry out the old fuse with a large screwdriver and replace it with a new one. Lots of juice there he said more than once, pointing his screwdriver at the fuse box. On one occasion when my father was away, the fuse blew, and I, wanting to show my mother how grown up I had become, slipped off without telling her to replace the fuse on my own. I inserted the screwdriver into the fuse box, as I had seen my father do many times, and... that's all I remember. When I came to, a few minutes later, I was lying flat on my back, several feet from the pump house, tingling from head to toe, holding a screwdriver in my hand that was bent in the shape of of an inverted U. I learned about juice that day, immense power, unseen but always present, invisible except for its effects. I've since learned of a greater juice, the infinite power of God. Unseen but always available, activated by prayer. I think of certain intractable folks a colleague, a parishioner, an elder, an adolescent daughter or son. Some problems can be worked out with words, some cannot. There's nothing left to say, but we can pray. Lots of juice there. That's a couple of poems from Eugene Shea. This one, a short one called The Early Bird. It said the early bird gets the worm. It's early to rise, this fable begs. Let old Aesop have his breakfast worm. Schedule me late for sausage and eggs. This one he called Fishing Rules. I noticed that a fisherman sat on Fisherman's Rock today and cast his lines so many times to the fish of Galloway Bay. The weather was hot. The fishing was not. The fish were taking a nap. Till he got a strike, never saw the like. Mermaid leaped into his lap. Well, the mermaid sat on the fisherman's lap and tickled him under the chin. He got out his book, took a close look, and threw the mermaid back in. I'm in utter surprise, threw back such a prize. But he caught it a week too soon. Says, plain as can be on page 23 Mermaid season don't open till June.
1: Well, that's all for today. This has been kind of a short podcast, but we'll leave you with a, a quote to ponder. In the midst of one of the craziest election seasons ever, here's a thought from Sophocles. Nobody has a more sacred obligation to obey the law than those who make the law.
0: And we'll go out with that.
1: Thanks. Thank you for listening. Until next time, happy reading.
0: Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.